0: We all have access to the Word of God this morning, either in the Bible in front of you in the pew, or maybe you took your own Bible along, or on your device, or the passage that we're considering this morning is also in the bulletin. So, a lot of options. Let's turn to the Word of the Lord, Psalm 36, this morning. Psalm 36. When we look at this psalm together... We're going to see something that is almost too good to be true. And you go, well, what is that? I'm not going to tell you, at least not now, but I will in the sermon. Psalm 36 is written by the great poet and king and one of the most notable figures in all of the Old Testament. It's King David, the greatest king in Israel, a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. He's also a man who realized that he was imperfect. You know, he was called a man after God's own heart, but if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that David had some low points as well. There's the adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba. There was also the plot to kill uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. There were other things in his life, which I won't point at now for the sake of time, where he knew the depths of his own sin. But he also knew something, a truth of God, that was, as I said, almost too good to be true. Now, if you take a look at Psalm 36, you see that there's a fundamental contrast here between what the Bible calls the unrighteous and the righteous. Those who are followers of God and those who are not. The psalmist begins in this way now, as we read, by focusing on a word that reflects those who do not know God. They're not walking with him, the wicked. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good and he does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink. From the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you. And your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down unable to rise. So, you see how the psalm begins and ends, right? It it begins and ends with a focus on those who are called the wicked or the unrighteous. But you notice in the middle of the psalm, there's a focus on those who know by the grace of God, they know something about God. And when you put this passage in light of the whole New Testament, you see they they know something of what it means to be united to Jesus by faith. There's a blessing to that. And you see, especially in just the one verse that we're going to consider this morning, although I'll put it in context early on in the sermon, I want to draw your attention to verse 8. And I want you to notice the sheer abundance and liberality that comes to those who know God. And who are united to Christ. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. So at the outset here this morning, let me ask you a very simple question. I want you to all think about it. You don't have to blurt out the answer. Just tuck it away in your head and think about it. And that is this. What is the one teaching of the Bible that you find most difficult to either understand or accept? Is it the Bible's teaching on predestination? The teaching of the Bible on election? The teaching of the Bible concerning reprobation? The fact from all eternity, God decides to pass by some with his grace and call them to faith? Try to wrap your mind around that. Try to wrap your mind around the Trinity. How about infant baptism? Baptism. How about the call to church discipline? How about the imprecations that we find in the Bible? Those various places, by the way, in both the Old and New Testament, where there are actually curses that are pronounced upon the wicked. You know, those, those are things that are not always easily understood, certainly not easily accepted. Let me, let me mention one more teaching that you're probably not thinking about this morning. How about the Bible's teaching on God's generosity? That God is far more liberal than we oftentimes imagine. That God is more free and open-handed with his grace and with his gifts than we are oftentimes willing to accept. The sternness of God? Yeah, I get that. The justice of God? Yeah, I expect that. But God's generosity? And yet isn't that what we see here? I mean, listen to those words carefully again. Reflect on them. They, your people, feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the, not the trickle, from the river of your delights. Reminds me of a few verses at the end of Psalm 16. Where similarly, the psalmist writes this, Lord, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Man, that's almost too good to be true. But it is. Because I just read those words to you. Now we've got to grapple with those words and the meaning of those words. Let's do that. So you take a look at Psalm 36, as I said earlier before the scripture reading, you've got, you got two types of people that are mentioned here. You've got, you got the wicked, the unrighteous, and you have the righteous. You have the, the followers of God. So there's a very clear demarcation between the two of them. The, 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 the wicked, those who do not know God, those who don't have a, rela- a living relationship with God, their life leads, according to the psalm, in the path of, de- uh, of destruction. They walk the path leading to destruction. The righteous is very different. They walk the path that leads to delight. So wicked and destruction, righteous, uh, the righteous and delight. And what we see in this psalm, as we focus on the righteous this morning, is that... They, they know something cognitively that is up here, but also here in their hearts, experientially. They experience in their lives something of what, we, what the psalmist calls the steadfast love of the Lord. And that, that word here, and Pastor Michael has noted this, and you've heard this many times, but it's well worth remembering again. That that word steadfast love of the Lord in the original Hebrew is really one word. It's the word chesed, which really reflects the loyal, committed, and ongoing love of the Lord for his people, for the righteous. Do you think about that when you come in here on a typical Sunday morning? That if you're walking with Christ, you know that you're coming to this place under the umbrella of the ongoing, loyal, love of God or does that simply seem too good to be true but it is true three times in this psalm the steadfast love of the lord is mentioned so we get it into our heads take a look at verse 5 your steadfast love o lord extends to the heavens verse 7 how precious is your steadfast love o god verse 10 o oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you It's as if the psalmist is saying to us today, even though this is written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the psalmist is saying, friends, listen. When you know the Lord, and when you have a living relationship with Him, through faith in Jesus Christ, a life of obedience... You, you enter into something that those who don't know God don't experience in this life, and that's the ongoing loyal love of God that remains with you, fashions you more into the image of Jesus, and provides for you in your deepest of need. You know, we, I, I just prayed for that, that uh, gentleman, Eric, and his wife, Sandra, regarding the loss of their son. Now, you talk about steadfast love, of Lord. If you lost loved ones, it rips your heart out. But you know, deep down, the Lord has not abandoned you. The Steadfast love remains with you. And even in those times, even in those times, as the grief begins to dissipate, you taste something, something of paradise. You say, why would you say that? Because I think the text requires that I say it. Take a look at verse 8 again. This This is what the psalmist says. It says, your people feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them those who are the righteous, those who love you, O Lord, you give them to drink of the river of your, now notice the word, delights. The word delights here, there's something interesting going on in the Hebrew. It's actually the word Eden, from which we get our English word Eden. And, and so what, what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, you, you give your people the ability and the joy of drinking from the river of Eden itself. You know there was a river going through the Garden of Eden? It's like the Lord, the Lord takes you where you're at. He, he gives you a taste of his love. And in that love, he takes you right here and he brings you back. He brings you back to the Garden of Eden where that river is flowing. He says, now drink from that. Drink from paradise. Now, if you have your Bibles open and you look at the very next psalm, Psalm 37, verse 4, the word delight is used there as well. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Did you know that's a different, well, you wouldn't know that probably, but that that word delight there in Psalm 37, verse 4 is a different word than what we find here in Psalm 36. Only in Psalm 36 is it the word Eden, Eden. Drink, says the Lord. Drink of paradise. What was Eden? Well, I'll tell you what. It was, a, it was a different place than what we find today. Eden was a place of joy in a world of what many of us have experienced. And in light of the prayer requests that I made this morning. Eden is a place of joy and a miss of sorrow. Eden is a place of abundance in a world of want. Eden is a place of beauty in a world of sometimes ugliness and distortion and various deformities. Eden was a place that was the, was the dwelling place of God. It was the house of God. And Eden was a place where a river ran through it. So when you consider the language here, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. It's all in the context of the Garden of Eden. Here's my point. God is a generous God. God is not a stingy God, God is not a miserly God, God is not like this. He's not tight-fisted where we got to go up to him and we got to kind of <laughs> kind of peel those fingers back to see if he'll just give us a little of his abundance. But he's generous. He's as if I may say this in a good sense, he's a liberal God, far more liberal Than what we usually think. Now, I want to want to draw back from this for just a moment and simply say this: This is, I think, maybe for some of us here this morning, I don't know, but could be the case that this is the, the generosity of God is something that is is kind of difficult to accept. Notice I didn't say difficult to understand. I said difficult to accept. Somehow, and maybe you can identify with this. Because because sometimes we feel things that don't always accord with our theology, with what we know to be true. But isn't there something deep in every one of us that says, you know, I need to be kind of in a, a good place before God's going to be good to me. I, I, I need to be somewhat of in a sweet place before God is sweet to me. And that if I'm doing things in my life, I'm caught in certain sin struggles in my life, the idea is, is that the steadfast love of God is not necessarily there. What we have is we have the frown of God until we kind of get our act straight, deal with the sins in our lives, and then the frown would be changed into a smile. Could it be that God is both, that his heart is grieved by the sins that we commit, but ultimately it's his love, whereby his spirit, his word works in our lives, whereby he draws us back to ourselves? Sometimes we focus on the frown to the exclusion of the steadfast love of the Lord. Not the the temporary love, but the steadfast love. It's like, think about this, it's like a little boy or a little girl, just, I don't know, five, six years old woke up on the wrong side of the bed just being a pill that day, you know? And do you think that that child, if they grew up in a, a, a good home, a loving home, that child thinks, you know, if I, if I don't get good with daddy and mommy and I don't start doing something good, that daddy won't love me anymore. That daddy will tell me I have to live with someone else child doesn't think that way in a good home. child knows that even though what they have done may hurt their parents, they know that their dad will always love them. Their mommy will always love them. Right? That's why. If, we, if we believe that about a human family, why can't we believe that about God? Or how about this? Here's something we also struggle with. Um, that if, if, if we talk too much about God being a liberal God and a generous God, that somehow... If we focus too much on that, what we end up doing is we end up undermining those, those, <laughs> those, very, those very things that many Christians don't want to deal with today, which is God's justice and punishment and hell itself. I mean, how many Christians really talk about that today? So if we, if we emphasize, if we magnify the generosity of God, we're not really dealing adequately with these things. And these are the things that go on in our lives. And so over time what happens is that we don't embrace in a way that we should the generosity of God rooted in his covenantal, ongoing, loyal love. Because, it's, because it almost seems too good to be true. Again... Um, and yet Jesus, Jesus himself speaks about generosity. Do you remember in his ministry where Jesus, Jesus was accustomed to telling simple stories? And here's a simple story. Again, it's a story that the smallest of children or the newest of Christians can understand. So Jesus tells a story about, a, about a, a, an owner of a vineyard. And one day he hires a bunch of guys to work in his vineyard. And some guys he hires at 6 a.m., some guys he hires at 9, some, some guys he, he hires at 12, and some, some he he hires at three. You know the story, right? At the end of the day, what does he do? He gives them all the same pay. Now imagine if you were one of those vineyard workers who started at 6 a.m. It's like, man, what's up with that? It's like, you know, why does the guy who works a few hours get the same pay as I do? You know, and Jesus is anticipating that. You know, it's, it's, like, it's like someone who grew up in a Christian family and knew nothing about the love and the grace of God all their lives. And then you have a deathbed confession. Some guy who's lived a very, in the words of the psalmist, a very wicked life, but by God's grace, he comes to faith in Christ. And Christ, he he, he gives them the same reward of heaven, the new creation. And it's like, that doesn't sit always well with us. How do you you wrap your mind around that? And Jesus' response to that is this. First of all, he says, you know what? I'm I'm the owner of the vineyard. I can do what I want in the pay that I give, in the reward that I give. That's my prerogative. But but then he makes this statement. He says to the men who are grumbling about the pay, he said, literally, in the original language, it reads like this. Is your eye evil because I am good? English translations, I think, do a good job with that. Jesus says, are you envious because I'm generous? Because I'm generous? He didn't say, are you envious because I'm, I'm fair? Because to us, and Jesus anticipates it, that doesn't seem fair. No, generosity. That's in the heart of Jesus. Reminds me of the great Alexander, the great, great Greek emperor, who was walking down a road one day after a great victory with an entourage with him. And there's a beggar by the side of the road. Open, open hands, open, uh, uh, upward turned arms, open hands, like, please. And what does Alexander the Great do? Does he kick him to the curb? No. He he gives him a number of gold coins. And one in the entourage said, Emperor, you know, a, a few copper coins would have suited him fine. And Alexander the Great says, Yeah, a few copper coins would have suited him fine, but it doesn't suit my generosity. And I think a lot of times, we're like that, that beggar, you know? We've got open hands. And what are we expecting from God? A few copper coins. Because God knows how bad we are, how sinful we are. And then, there are times when God, like the great emperor, Alexander the Great, he gives us not copper coins, he gives us gold coins. Something that we're not expecting. Something that goes beyond what we ask or imagine. That's kind of difficult to accept. Again, it seems too good to be true. And speaking about something that's too good to be true, I want to draw your attention back to the text one more time. Let's pick it apart a little bit. A couple things. And I want to, I want to bring a couple things out on the basis of the original language again. Not to sound smart, okay? But just because it's edifying, Look closely at the wording again, verse 8. They, your people, feast on the abundance of your house. Literally, in original language, it reads like this. They feast on the fatness of your house. You You know, sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? They feast on the fatness of your house. But you see, in the Old Testament, fat was the best part of the sacrifice that was offered in the Old Testament. So have you ever done this? Have you ever gone to like a meat market and they got all those, those meats there? I've done this before. And I'm kind of naive regarding, you know, the best meats to get. I know everybody thinks about filet mignon and so on. So I'll ask the guy be, behind the counter. I do this every time when I take a trip to Iowa. I always go to this place where they, they sell this, this fresh meat. In there, they got all kinds, you know, because Iowa's just got this really good meat. So I go in there and, and I want to get a good piece of meat. And so I say, hey, what, do you, what do you got there? And what And what's the best? And oftentimes they'll say this. Well, if you want to pay it out, New York strip is good. Flamingo is really good. But if you really want a a, a tasty steak, you know what I'm going to say? Ribeye. You go ribeye. It's marble. It's marble. Got the fat mixed in with it. Makes it very flavorful. You know, it's the best for flavor. What's what's my point with this? When when, when, (laughs) when, when the the, the psalm says they feast, literally they, they. they fill up on, on the fatness of your house. They're filling themselves up, Lord, with the best that you give them. God doesn't give second rate. That's not the kind of God that he is. He gives the best of the best. The best of the best. And then the second part we read, the, the psalmist writes, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. Um, n- n- not, Lord, you give them... And and sometimes, you know, again, if you, I oftentimes, uh, my image, my my thoughts go back again to the kind of the Midwest, where you you find these little creeks, you know, and they've got just a little bit of water in them, right? This is not a creek. This is not this is not um, a trickle. This is a river. You give them to to drink of the river of your delights. Um, the, The the word here in the original conveys sometimes what we call a wadi. And we got them in, in the desert. Sometimes we read things in the Bible and we go, oh, I identify with that because I live in a desert, right? And you ever, when you're driving down the road, you drive down the interstate, and you, you, and then you see this sign. And if you first move to Arizona, you kind of laugh at it. But if you live in Arizona for a long time, you're just used to it. But it says, you know, like river, right? And you look and it's like, there's no river there, right? Well, it becomes a river when it rains. Because in the Midwest, when you have this rich soil, when it rains, it sinks right into the ground. But when it rains out here, it falls on hard soil and sandy soil and it doesn't, it doesn't sink in. It just keeps accumulating on the surface and then it enters these dry riverbeds. And then what you have? You have this torrent. This torrent of, of water. It can be dangerous. And what the psalmist is saying is, Lord, not only do you give us the best of the best when you give, but you give in, a, you give in abundance. You give what is most you see why I say that, that gen, this kind of generosity is kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around? Friends, we've got to realize that this, this kind of abundance is it's in the heart of God. And it's in the hand of God. And, and all of this abundance, the Bible is very clear, it, kind of, it, it flows to us. And it flows to us through Jesus Who's the mediator between God and man. Or should man and God, right? And so Jesus is that mediator. He's that go-between. And it's when we entrust ourselves to him by means of repentance and faith. When we let go of ourselves and our selfish selves. And we come to the end of ourselves. And we plead for forgiveness. And we plead for life. And we plead for abundance. We plead in the name of Jesus. And God receives us in the name of Jesus, who is a sufficient Savior. He's not a half a Savior, where we embrace Jesus, and then on top of that, Jesus says, now, if you really want to be right with God, I got you halfway, now you need to do this and this and this, and then you'll be fully embraced by God. No, no, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. And it's through Jesus, then, that we receive this abundance, and as beggars in need, with our hands open, he fills these hands with with abundance. I want to leave you with this this morning, and it's it's an illustration that is true, and it's one that I find both moving and compelling. It revolves a woman named Darlene Rose, who was a missionary to New Guinea during World War II, Japanese-occupied territory in World War II, and she and her husband uh, were recently married. They went on the mission field. And they both experienced terrible, terrible things. Disease, beriberi, malaria. They were beaten. They were starved. They were both treated very harshly by a camp commander named Mr. Yamaji, as he's noted in the book. And her husband died. He didn't make it. And she barely clung on to life. And one day she was in her prison cell and she, there, was a, there was her cell and a window in the cell and then she saw a fence. And behind the fence there was a woman, it was a dangerous thing for her to do, but behind the fence there was a woman who went up to a tree and, and she reached for some bananas. Now there was, a, there was a Japanese guard that went back and forth. When the Japanese guard went this way, he stopped, he turned around, and he went this way. And when he went this way, the woman over here grabbed a few bananas. And this, this missionary, Darlene Rose, was just praying, Lord, may you keep her safe. She, she, she wants those bananas. And she, she took a bunch of bananas, and then she ran away, in the guard never saw her. And that, that was the occasion for Darlene to pray to God, Lord, would you give me just one banana? That's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking for much. Would you just give me, give me one banana? Well, later that day, Japanese guard and Mr. Yamaji came. They talked with her. And um, in the concentration camps, um, you have to treat the commander with respect, and you have to bow, and you have to bow correctly, or they will beat you. And that day, not only did she not bow correctly, but she forgot to bow altogether. They left, the commandant and a guard. They left and she remembered oh my goodness i i failed to even bow and i'm going to pay the price next day the guard came to her cell and she expected the beating of her life and she writes this i heard the guard coming back and i knew he was coming for me struggling to my feet i stood ready to go he opened the door walked in and with a sweeping gesture laid at my feet Bananas. They're yours, he said, and they're all from Mr. Yamaji of all people. I sat down in stunned silence and I counted them. There were 92 bananas. 92! She says, in all my spiritual experience, I've never known such shame before my Lord. I pushed the bananas into a corner and wept before him. And I said, Lord, forgive me. I'm so ashamed. I couldn't trust you enough to get even one banana for me. And just look at them. There's almost a hundred. In the quiet of the shadowed cell, he answered back within my heart, that's what I delight to do, the exceeding abundant above anything you ask or think and I knew in those moments that nothing is impossible for my God you may be in a position of life right now where you're just at the very end and you're crying out for one banana and you wait and you wait and you wait sometimes the Lord gives you that one banana but it's not unbecoming of him and it's not unusual for him to throw 92 or 93 at your feet. Because as the writer of Ephesians says, that God oftentimes is not only able, but willing to do far more than what we ask or imagine according to his power that works in and through us. Let's keep trusting the Lord. Let us flee to him. And let us never doubt, never doubt his generosity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the encouragement of the gospel this morning. Lord, you are not only gracious, but you are generous. And for that, we give you praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.